I'd like to ask you to turn to the um, last page of the Bible, the uh, 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation. It's relatively easy to find. We've come now to the uh, conclusion in our studies in the book of Revelation, and uh, I suspect that uh, some of you are going to sigh with relief. This has been tough sledding. I personally have been frustrated off and on by uh, our studies in this book because it's very difficult to interpret. It's been handy to have Steve Newman around to teach those chapters that I never could figure out. But uh, I'm comforted by the fact that uh, Paul uh, tells us that we know in part there are simply some things we don't know. And I have to confess to a great deal of ignorance about the book of Revelation, but for me, though it's been frustrating, it's been a very enriching uh, experience. Now, what we have in this last paragraph is something of an epilogue. It corresponds to the seven-page, seven-verse prologue with which the uh, book of Revelation begins. There's a great deal of correspondence in, uh, in the ideas presented. When you first read through this section, you would almost gain the impression that uh, the, the utterances are not related at all. The angel speaks, John speaks, the Lord himself uh, speaks and uh, there doesn't seem to be any thread that ties them together. But as I continued to read through the paragraph, I saw two themes that are repeated a number of times. One is the authenticity of the book, the authority of the book, and uh, its relationship to all of prophetic scripture. This book has laid aside all of the Old Testament prophetic uh, books and said to bear equal weight, equal authority. That's the first theme. The second theme is that of the imminency of Christ's coming. And uh, if you've read through the, uh, through the chapter, you know three times Jesus says, I am coming soon, in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. I never read this chapter without thinking, without remembering the story of the young preacher who uh, decided to extemporize uh, one Sunday morning. He was just going to preach without any preparation and wait for God to uh, tell him what to say. And he announced his text from this chapter, Behold, I am coming quickly. And his mind went blank. He couldn't think of a thing to say. And uh, he was a bit embarrassed. But he thought if he repeated the text, something would come to mind. And so he, he said it again a little bit louder, Behold, I come quickly. And still nothing came. He couldn't think of a single comment to make. And uh, so he decided to repeat it again the third time, and he made a grand gesture. Behold, I come quickly. And he lost his balance and fell off of the platform right into the lap of an elderly woman who was sitting on the front uh, seat. And uh, as he got up, he apologized profusely, and, and uh, he felt terrible about it. And he, she said, well, that's all right, young man. You warned me three times. I should have listened. <laughs> Well, this is not a warning. This is a promise. But uh, he says it three times, and therefore he must mean it. Let's begin reading with verse 6. Revelation 22, 6. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. This is the interpreting angel speaking to John. But you'll notice throughout, the Lord himself often speaks through the voice of the angel. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. So these words, which refer to the book of Revelation, are linked with the words of the prophets 
God spoke through the spirits of the prophets, we're told, which is a reference to the Old Testament and New Testament prophets. And these words, uh, in line with all of Scripture, are faithful and true. The word faithful means reliable, something you can count on, something that will bear your weight. Uh, those benches that you uh, are sitting on are faithful in that sense. They're reliable. Uh, you can trust them. And secondly, they're true. That is, the Scriptures correspond to reality. As John Fisher puts it in one of his uh, songs, read the Bible. The words inside are true and reliable. Now, that's in contrast with almost everything else you, uh, you read in the world today. There really is only one piece of literature that I know anything about that is absolutely trustworthy. It's not a mixture of truth and error. It can be, uh, it can be trusted throughout in that Scripture. You can't even trust Abby Van Buren any longer. Uh, I don't know if you saw, if you've been reading Abby this past week. I, I try to periodically just to see what sort of counsel she's giving out. And there were, uh, on a couple of occasions, she gave uh, just absolutely awful counsel to some poor, desperate woman who, who was writing in, uh, counsel that anyone who knows Scripture would recognize is contrary to God's will for us as, as human beings. So uh, don't trust uh, dear Abby. Uh, don't ultimately believe in anyone but God. He's the only one who's ultimately trustworthy. Malcolm Muggeridge, the dear old curmudgeon, put it this way. He said to, uh, to believe um, uh, greatly, it is necessary to doubt greatly. In other words, if we're really going to believe what the Bible says, there has to be some measure of doubt about everything else. We have to be willing to scrutinize everything and evaluate it in terms of Scripture. Only Scripture ought to have our, our trust, our complete trust. Uh, there's a fellow named Ben Patterson who's pastor of a Presbyterian church in Irvine, California. And he wrote... Uh, oops, I got the wrong note here. Uh, we'll forget Ben Patterson. There's a great quote. I'll try to include it when it's written. We've been putting together a jigsaw puzzle at our house. Um, Brian likes to put together jigsaw puzzles, and he, we got this enormous puzzle of uh, San Francisco by night. And uh, it's just incredibly difficult. We worked on it for, for hours and hours, and finally just got the, the outside of the puzzle put together. And I was looking at that puzzle, and it reminded me of life. That's the way life is. There's so many pieces. It all seems the same. You don't know where to fit it all together. But you know what saves the day? It's the cover picture. You can look at the cover picture, and then you know where to put, put the uh, pieces of the puzzle. And I thought, now that's what Scripture does for you. You look at life, and you cannot figure out how it all fits together. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Where does this piece go? Susan shared with us her need for wisdom, and, and all of us from time to time need wisdom to make practical decisions in life. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Word of God. That's the only faithful and reliable witness that we have. Now, in verse 7, the angel goes on to pronounce a blessing on those who heed the book. And behold, I am coming quickly. You'll recognize this is, again, the Lord speaking through the angel. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, this is a book to obey. This is a book to be heeded. Not merely a book from which we can draw timelines and get our eschatology straight. It has some value. 
for that purpose. But uh, the ultimate purpose of the book is to show us how to live, how to cope with life now, how to be wise and skillful. There are things to be heeded here. We're told, for example, to pray even when it appears that our prayers are not being answered. We're told to stand fast, uh, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. When, when you've done everything, you know what to do. When you've put on all the armor of Christ, put on Christ himself, and things don't seem to be going well, well, just keep on standing. Even though your outpost is overrun, just keep on standing. And uh, furthermore, we're told to keep on making proclamation of the truth, even if people don't listen. Because, uh, as Revelation teaches us, things are not as they seem to be. What we see is not what we get. <laughs> what we see is not all that there is. There's a great cosmic battle going on behind the scenes. And uh, nations and individuals are simply puppets, which uh, the uh, satanic and demonic powers behind the scene are using. And uh, by our prayer, and by our witness, and by our righteousness, we are affecting the outcome of that war. The uh, weapons that God has given to us are the great weapons of faith, the weapons of prayer, and personal righteousness, and proclamation of the truth, and dependence. And uh, as we act in obedience to these principles, then God is, uh, we know by faith, is at work to accomplish uh, His ends. And uh, furthermore, there is a blessing pronounced upon those who heed it, who obey it. And notice the blessing is not merely pronounced upon those who read it. Uh, I think some people believe that, that what John is talking about here is the warm feeling that one gets from, from reading Scripture. That may come from time to time, just a sense of encouragement and uplifting that uh, comes as a result of uh, looking into the Word and beginning to think God's thoughts after him. But really what John is talking about here, what, what the angel is referring to, is the sense of well-being that comes from obedience. As we do what God has called us to do, we are blessed. As James puts it, if instead of being merely hearers of the word, we are doers of the word, we are blessed in our doing. I was talking to a man this past week who told me that he uh, turned in an airplane uh, ticket, airline ticket, uh, because he didn't use it. The ticket was canceled, and the credit card uh, company, uh, when subtracting that amount from his bill, apparently ran the information through the computer twice, so that uh, twice as much was taken off of his uh, visa charge. And when he got his bill, he discovered he actually had a positive balance. And he thought, after all of the grief these people have caused me in the past, this is, this is retribution. And... Uh, for a while, he wrestled with his conscience, and he decided not to say anything about it. But uh, he knew that he had to, because in obedience to the Scriptures, he had to be truthful, and he had to settle his account, and he went down to the bank and, and uh, settled affairs. And uh, as he was walking out, he said there was just a great sense of relief and well-being. Now, that's what, that's what uh, the angel is referring to here, that sense of peace and quietness of heart and a health of spirit that comes from doing what, what God has called us to do. Then in verse 8, John lends his authority to the words of the book. I, John, he writes, am the one who heard and saw these things. I didn't make them up. I didn't fabricate this uh, 
this book. God is the source of it. I saw these things in a vision. I heard what the angel uh, said when he interpreted the vision to me. And uh, when I heard and saw, he says, I fell down to, to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And the angel said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed or obey the words of this book. John's really referring to what he uh, describes in chapter 19. He was so awed by the vision that he fell to his feet and worshipped the interpreting angel, and the angel there corrected him. I don't think here he's repeating the same error. He's simply going back to his former response to the vision and reminding us of the temptation to worship the vehicle rather than the source of the revelation. And we need to bear that in mind. The worship of the creature, whether it's an angel or another man, is idolatry. God is the source of this truth, not any man. Uh, angels are not always good. There are evil angels abroad. We do not know that their, their witness is true unless we, it corresponds to Scripture. Paul himself tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So angels are not the ultimate authority. No man is the ultimate authority, no matter how helpful he may be to you or how true his exposition may be to the Word. Don't trust men. Trust God. That's simply another appeal to the authority of this book. Worship the author of the book, not someone who expounds the book to you or who explains its truths. Worship God. He's the... Uh, he's the, the only one worthy of worship. And then in verses 10 and 11, John is told to publish or to make public the vision. The angel said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, <laughs> and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So John is told not to seal up the words of this prophecy. Uh, you'll note that's in direct contrast to, the, to Daniel's instructions to seal the prophecy because the end is far off. In this case, he says the end is near. And uh, even though you publish it, there will be many who will not listen because they're bent upon wickedness. They'll go on doing wickedness to the end. And, uh, but on the other hand, there'll be many who will respond to the revelation, and they'll go on doing righteousness to the end. So don't be uh, dismayed by the fact that there will always be two classes of, of people in the world, those who listen to the truth and those who do not. It's uh, really a parallel statement to what God told Ezekiel. Whether they hear or whether they refuse to hear, they will at least know that a prophet has been among them. And so John is to publish this report regardless of people's response. And when the Lord comes back in verse 12, and as he says, he's coming soon, my reward is with me, and I will render to every man according to what he has done. In other words, we will know the results of our proclamation then, not necessarily now. And then the Lord seals that promise with his own name, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the, uh, and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Some of you women uh, 
can evoke uh, verse 15 as authority for keeping your husband's hunting dogs outside the house, outside are the dogs. Uh, there it is on biblical authority. They don't have to uh, shed all over your furniture. Uh, no, that's not really what he's saying. Nor is he saying that uh, dogs will not be in heaven. I simply don't know if dogs will be in heaven or not. If C.S. Lewis has anything to do with it, they'll be there. Uh, there will even be talking dogs there. But uh, this is rather a, a symbolic reference to a type of person. Dogs throughout the Old Testament, in fact, in all of the Eastern world and their literature, is a symbolic way of referring to evil, malicious, immoral men. Uh, even Paul uses the term that way. And uh, Jesus, speaking prophetically in one of the Psalms, describes those standing at the foot of the cross, uh, deriding him as he hung on the cross as, uh, as dogs. It's really a symbolic reference to the character of men who are like dogs. You know, in those days, dogs were not pets. They were scavengers. They lived outside. And he says, this moral class will be outside of the city. There's something very sad that, that ought to provoke a feeling of horror and uh, revulsion to us and, and sadness. Just the thought that some people are going to be outside, deserted forever. And some people will be inside. He says they'll be in the city. Now, what is it that brings one into the city? Well, he says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Robes in Scripture are, are symbols of character. In the book of Zechariah, there is a, a reference, a symbolic reference to Joshua, the high priest, who's described as standing before the angel of the Lord with dung-spattered garments. And uh, he's unworthy to stand there. He represents the state of the people, their moral state. But uh, the angel of the Lord commands that his garments be taken off and that they be replaced with pure garments. And a clean turban is put on his head. It's a picture of of imparted and imputed righteousness given to Zechariah and as the representative of the nation. And uh, the picture here of washing our garments is a picture of the cleansing that comes as a result of being plunged into the, the uh, uh, bloodbath, so to speak, of Jesus' death on the cross, His sacrifice for us. As the hymn puts it, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. You know, there isn't one of us who can't read verse 15 and say, That's, we're not like that. Because we are. We're all like that. We're all immoral, if not in act, at least in thought. We've all sinned uh, through sexual fantasy. And uh, we're all murderers in the sense in which Jesus said that to, uh, to assassinate someone's character or to hate someone is the same thing as murder. And we're all idolaters in that we've worshipped the the. Uh, creature rather than the creator at times. And certainly we've all loved and practiced lying. Who of us can say we haven't? We're all guilty. How can we get into the city? Well, there's only one way, and that's to wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. It's when we come to the gate of the city and, and we say, 
we're putting ourselves in Jesus' hands. We're not coming on our own merits. We're accepting the cleansing that He offers. And then we go on accepting that cleansing, that we have the right to the city. And then in verse 16, the Lord Himself lends His authority to the book. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, to you these things for the churches. Notice, everything in the book has to do with the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Again, he seals the authority of this book with his own name. And these names come from the Old Testament. He's the root, as Isaiah 11 tells us, of, of the line of David. And he's the son of David, according to 2 Samuel 7. Uh, if you think about this for a moment, it's uh, quite an interesting statement. He is both the source of David's line, and he is the son who sprang from David. It's an indirect reference to his deity, his preexistence, as well as his, his complete humanity. It's basically the same thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees when he uh, asked them the question. Uh, Matthew dis uh, records it for us in Matthew 22. He asked the Pharisees, Who do you say that the Messiah is? Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. Everyone knows that. The, the king will spring from David's line. And he said, Well, if that's so, why did David... Uh, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say, and, and he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Why did David refer to the Messiah as his Lord if he's his son? And it just sort of blew their lights out. They didn't have anything to say. Well, it's the same thing that, that John, or the Lord records for us here. He is both the source and Lord of David's line, and he is the son who issues from David. And he's the bright and morning star. This is another one of those, uh, those symbolic references which uh, words tend to uh, diminish. Uh, have you ever been up late at night or gotten up early in the morning just before the dawn? That's always the darkest, coldest, dreariest part of the day. And that's when the morning star rises. The morning star is the herald of the dawn. It comes up just uh, in that darkest hour, just before the sun rises. The sun of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings, as Malachi tells us. And what a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus, who in the darkest, this dark period of human history, just before his coming again, rises for his people as the bright and morning star. And he is for you as well. This may be a dark period of life for you. Fix your eye on the bright and morning star. That's the assurance that, it, that the Lord Jesus is coming back to set things right. Regardless of our struggles and hurts and pains now, He's coming to heal. And then in, verses, in verse 17, the introduction, an introduction, or an uh, uh, invitation is given to the readers of the book. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one, let the one who wishes to, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The Spirit here is the Spirit of Christ. The bride, of course, is the church. And the invitation is not to Christ to come. The first line is interpreted by the last line of the verse. It's an invitation to those who read and those who hear the revelation. Come to Christ. That's the witness that the Spirit gives. Uh, the Lord told the disciples that uh, 
when the Spirit came, he would convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he would not speak of himself, he would speak of Christ. And uh, the Spirit is alive and, and well and working in the world today to alert people to their need of a Savior. And the church witnesses in concert with the Spirit to their need to come to Christ. That, that's, our, that's our proclamation. That's what we have to say to the world. And we need to be cautious that we don't muddy it by adding anything to it. The word is simply come. Not come and be baptized. Not come and do good works. Uh, but come. Just come to Christ as He is. The only requirement is that you be thirsty. That's all. If you're satisfied, then there's nothing God can do. If you're perfectly happy with your life, if, there, if you have no needs, if you're able to scratch every itch that you have, then you don't need God. At least you aren't aware that you need God. And God can do nothing at that point. But if there's the slightest restlessness or unhappiness, if there is the least uh, indication that there's something more in your life, you're a little bit thirsty, then you need to come. And if you come, he says he'll give you water to drink without cost. If you're restless, if you're searching, if you're looking, he'll satisfy you. Verses 18 and 19 are um, another uh, word about the authority of the book of Revelation. And incidentally, th these words refer only to the book of Revelation. They have nothing to do with the uh, entire collection of, of Scripture, though I believe the 66 books that we have here are the complete revelation of God. We need nothing more. And uh, if we had time, I could explain how the early church went about determining which books were authentic and which were not. Uh, it's enough simply to say that the early church used the criteria established in Deuteronomy 18, the credentials of a prophet, to determine if books were, uh, were revelations from God or not. This passage really has nothing to do with the number of books that we include in our collection. It's rather a specific reference to the book of Revelation itself. I testify to anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. In other words, we're not to tamper or distort this message. We're not to add to it or delete anything from it. This is God's word just as it stands. And though we may not understand all of it, we need to consider all of it God's revelation to us and accept it in, in toto. Take our Bible straight. In other words, don't add anything to it. See? And as a matter of fact, he implies that if we don't, we may not even be Christians. He says, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, God shall take away his part from the tree of life. Now, he's not saying you can lose your salvation by inadvertently adding to Scripture. But he is saying that a willful distortion of Scripture may be an indication that we don't really belong to him. So this is a book to be taken seriously. And then finally, the last word in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. And uh, the bride responds, Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. This is the last note that struck in the book. He's coming again. And he really means it. He's coming back. And he's coming back soon. He said so. And he's the God who cannot lie. 
Has it ever struck you as strange that 1,900 years, almost 2,000 years have passed and he still isn't here? And yet he says, I'm coming soon. Time is a great mystery. That's something that we're told in Scripture that we do not know the times or seasons. Time's a mystery. We don't understand it. And uh, God's concept of time is entirely different from ours. We like things now. We want, you know, 30-page abridgments and 30-second uh, announcements and instant tea and all the rest. We don't want to take the time uh, that's necessary and the discipline necessary to, uh, to wait. But God's not like that. He doesn't mind our waiting. He doesn't even mind putting us through some ordeals, some hard ordeals while we wait. Um, he told Abraham that his descendants would be in uh, another country for 400 years because, he says, the, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, but after 400 years, I'll bring you back. He permitted his people to suffer in, Israel, in, in Egypt for 400 years while he waited for the Canaanites to repent. He wasn't in a hurry. And he still isn't in a hurry. He's still waiting for people outside the city to come in. And it's our responsibility to make that proclamation to those outside. Come. Come on in. This is where the warmth is. This is where the life is. This is where the sufficiency for life is. This is everything you need. Come on in. And even though we may suffer in the meantime, that's all right. God has a purpose for our suffering, too. He's using that to help us grow toward maturity. And He's waiting. But one of these days, He's coming back. He promised it. I'm coming quickly. And our response, along with John's and perhaps the angel and, and uh, the assembled uh, group in, in heaven around the throne, is come, Lord Jesus, come on back. Because he's the only one that can set this world straight. We're not going to, with all of our grand schemes for world betterment, we're not going to bring in the new creation. Only he can do that. And we wait for him. O Christ, in thee my soul has found, and found in thee alone, the peace and joy I sought so long, the rest till now unknown. Now none but Christ can satisfy, no other name for me. There's love and light and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in Thee. Let's stand together, shall we? And let's pray. In the Spirit of Christ and His Bride say, Come and keep on coming. Jesus said, come to me and I will never cast you out. He doesn't care how checkered your background, what uh, disastrous uh, choices you've made, how much you've marred your life or others. It doesn't really matter. How spattered your garments are. He just wants you to come and take him at his word, accept him as he is. If there's restlessness and longing in your heart, Know that He's been seeking you. He's the one who, who put that longing there, and He wants to fulfill you. And for those of us who have already come, let's keep in mind that we have a message to proclaim to the world, to those that are outside. 
the simple invitation to come to Christ. Let's be forthright and gracious in our proclamation of it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great revelation of yourself in this book. We've seen you walking among the churches and uh, being the resource that we need no matter what turns life take. Help us to remember as we go out into the world this week that things are not as they seem to be. And what we see is not what really is true, but there are things happening behind the scenes. You're at work to bring glory to yourself and to use us as your instruments. And we thank you for that. Help us to be faithful today and through this week to be, uh, to be your people in the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.